Good morning, everyone. Uh, it is wonderful to be here with you. I'm Simeon Zal, and um, I teach theology in university here. Um, and this week, I found myself kind of geeking out about the Bible. Uh, again, not a huge surprise. It is sort of my job um, to at least be willing to geek out about these kinds of things. But, um, uh, but I, was, I was especially sort of geeking out this uh, week. And that's because I got whatever the opposite of the short straw is with Micah readings. I got the easy one, <laughs> um, the, the one about Jesus. Um, so uh, Micah chapter 5. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Ollie and uh, Becca. Uh, anyway. As many of you will know, one of the great joys of reading Scripture and of going deeper into Scripture and of studying Scripture is that the more you read it, the more you see these layers and layers of cross-references. The closer you look, it's a very dry way of putting it, but the closer you look, the more you see how every part of Scripture is interconnected with a vast number of other parts. It's a kind of web of interconnected stories, prophecies, prayers, symbols and images, and so on. You know, in uh, airplanes, uh, we go on airplanes again now, don't we? Um, they, uh, sometimes you'll see in the magazine or whatever for the airline these maps of all the, of the hubs, and how everything, you know, you can go from Atlanta to London or whatever, and these, these sort of spider lines of, um, of lines connecting all these different places in the world. Well, Scripture is like that times a thousand. It thinks it's connected everywhere. And I think few people have ever said this more kind of eloquently than the... Um, romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Often he, people know about his poetry, they don't often know that he was also one of the most influential theologians in the 19th century in this country. Anyway, he wrote a book about the Bible, um, which was a kind of impassioned defense uh, of its kind of experiential power and authority, and criticizing Christians who saw the Bible as a very dry kind of repository of religious facts. He uh, rhapsodizes about what he calls the the whole body of holy writ with its harmonies and symmetrical gradations. It is a breathing organism, this glorious panharmonicon. Uh, the glorious panharmonicon, you can kind of figure out what he means, even though I had no idea what that was. Apparently it's some early 19th century kind of like auto organ or something. Anyway, it's a great image. Um, anyway, it's especially easy to see these harmonies and symmetrical gradations when you start looking at the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is hardly a word Jesus says, it turns out, that isn't either quoting or referencing Old Testament scripture, and there's hardly a thing he does that doesn't build on images and stories from elsewhere in the Bible. And our passage today is a textbook case of this. It's a text full of harmonies and resonances. In other words, it's a text very much worth geeking out over. So to Christian ears, uh, Micah 5 proves unexpectedly familiar. This is above all because of verses 2 and 4. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be a ruler of Israel, whose origin are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of of the Lord. Now, the reasons this verse is familiar, as many of you will know, is that it is quoted in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 2 as part of the Christmas story, or the post-Christmas story. So when the wise men come to Herod asking where the Messiah 
where to find the Messiah, the stars come, where can we find him? Uh, and the, so the, 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 the teachers come together and they say, oh, the, the prophets say he comes from Bethlehem. Uh, uh, they say, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come, become a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So, to put it very straightforwardly, our Micah passage is understood and read by Matthew as a prophecy about Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, it turns out, is the coming Messiah Micah is talking about. He is the one who was born in Bethlehem and who will be a shepherd to his people. Now, part of what gets me kind of excited and sort of, you know, intellectually and, and so on is that it's, um, it's not, the relationship between the two passages isn't just one way. So, sure, Micah helps us understand Matthew. The Old Testament prophecy helps us to see what's happening in the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life that he was foretold, the Messiah, these sorts of things. But it also works the other way. This is how scripture is. This is what the interconnected web means. So Micah doesn't just help us understand Matthew, but Matthew helps us to interpret Micah. Specifically, by showing that this chapter is a prophecy about Jesus, Matthew is simultaneously showing us that there is more going on in Micah than it appears at first reading. At first reading, Micah is about a very specific situation. God's people are under great threat from the neighboring Assyrian Empire. Verse 1, marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. It's a situation of, of siege uh, in some sense. And verse 6, the coming leader, the prophesied leader, will deliver us from the Assyrians. Now, if this passage were just about hoping for relief from an Assyrian invasion, frankly, it might be difficult to preach about. The Assyrian Empire fell about 2,600 years ago, about 609 BC, apparently, and about a century after the period in which Micah was probably active. So you and I have many problems in our lives, but the threat of Assyrian invasion is not one of them. So when Matthew reads Micah as a prophecy about Christ, he's simultaneously telling us that Micah isn't just about politics in the Near East in the 8th century BC. Rather, it is also simultaneously about the human condition and God's response to it. The world into which this shepherd comes is a world of plight, uh, a world that needs such a shepherd. The passage talks about the experience of being under siege. It talks about the experience of feeling abandoned. And it talks about Jesus, a shepherd leader who will bring us peace and who will deliver us from our enemies. Those are the two main things it says he will do bring peace and deliver us from enemies. So read Christologically, as in read through the lens of Jesus, this passage has powerful further layers of resonance and meaning that are revealed. We start to see what Coleridge meant when he called the Bible a breathing organism full of harmonies and symmetrical gradations. So siege, a siege is laid against us. Tell me, does your life ever feel like you are under a state of siege? Like you are being constantly attacked or harassed or called upon, constantly on the defensive? Like each week is mainly something to survive and endure as you are bombarded from all sides? Now, for some people today, as we uh, 
heard about in the prayers. Um, for some people in the world today, being under siege is not a metaphor. In Ukraine, most saliently, but elsewhere as well, and all through history, there have been people hiding, fighting, trying to endure and survive in the face of military attack. But for us here in Cambridge, siege is likely to be a little bit more spiritual and existential. If you're an adult, you might feel under siege from your job. I mean, I certainly don't here at the start of the uh, Easter term when everyone in the world needs um, something from you. Uh, I don't, it's not me I'm talking about, but I'm sure some of you relate to feeling under siege at your job. We live in a world where the default measure of worth is our success at work for very many people, uh, for us. A world that gradually turns us all into workaholics who can't stop responding to emails at night or on vacation right there when you're trying to play with your kids, even during times you specifically tried to set aside. I watched a movie this week that's like, okay, it's an okay movie, uh, with my daughter called The Devil Wears Prada. Some of you will uh, know this movie. It's about a, um, uh, a woman who wants to be a journalist and she ends up becoming the intern to this sort of very kind of evil but um, very intense uh, editor at a fa fashion magazine based on the editor of Vogue. And, um, and it's sort of this story of her transformation by her work, how she goes from being sort of not taking fashion seriously and not and just thinking this is a terrible job, that she's just killing time. She slowly gets kind of seduced by the job. She starts to like the clothes and the, the glamour, and she starts to get good at it, and she enjoys the affirmation, and then the boss, who's really scary, starts to be nice to her a little bit, and then she sort of gets slowly reeled in. And the cost over the course of the movie, the, the plot really is that, and all the other relationships in her life kind of fall away as she is, she is besieged in her soul uh, by this job and her, her boyfriend gets, she, she keeps not showing up for his birthday party and not doing things with her friends and anyway, um, her, her job is, her life is under siege from her new job and almost destroys her. And I think that's something that uh, is all too relatable. I think also, though, for many of us, it feels like our mental health is under siege, uh, and maybe especially um, for adolescents. There's been a lot of very kind of um, very sad and disturbing uh, data coming out um, about adolescent mental health. Did you know that between 2007 and 2019, the number of adolescents reporting a major depressive episode increased 60%? In the US, that is, 13%, more than one in 10 of all adolescents experienced major depression in the year 2019. And this is before the pandemic. The data are increasingly clear these days that anxiety, compulsive behaviors, even suicide have increased drastically for young people since the start of, as it happens, the age of the smartphone. Uh, they're getting less sleep, spending far less time with friends in person, both things that are good for your mental health. Uh, they and we now also have the whole world to compare ourselves to, setting impossible standards for what we think our lives should look like. We are bombarded with negative and despair-inducing news from all over the world, much of which you know, it's, it's, it's true, but we, we see it now. It's mediated to us very immediately. Um, climate change, war in Europe, economic troubles, an endless stream of stories of people mistreating one another. And all this is mediated through the shiny device in our pockets, which is always with us and always calling for a quick hit whenever we have 60 seconds to stand still. No one minds waiting in queues anymore because, oh, phone time, great. Um, so let's be honest, it's not just adolescents who are being bombarded and overwhelmed by the world mediated to us by our 
phones, our mental health in this sense, I think, and for other reasons too, but is under siege. We are tired and vulnerable, and we need someone to deliver us. The situation in Micah isn't just a state of siege either. This is serious stuff. God's people are also feeling abandoned. You don't have to scratch very deep in people's lives to find fear of abandonment, experiences of abandonment. For all too many people, they've been felt themselves abandoned by someone they love at some point in their lives, and it becomes a defining experience. But there's also more subtle forms of abandonment. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I slightly mean it as a joke, but not really. Um, when I was a postgrad here, my wife and I lived here for six years as um, postgrad, postdoc, and um, this time of year when all the flowers are blooming in Cambridge and it's nice and warm, and it's, when Cambridge is at its most glorious, I have this visceral association with abandonment because every year during grad school, my closest friends would move away. That's what happens in a city like Cambridge. People are on a, sh many, many people, especially when you're in that kind of phase, are on a short shelf life. You, every June, every July, you're going to going away parties for people who you laboriously got close to, and then next year you're still around, um, well, some of us, and, uh, and you, you, you wish, um, you, wish you, you feel like you've been left behind. So um, I think some people probably are going to be experiencing that feeling in a, in a more, small but nevertheless real way uh, in, the, in the coming weeks and months. So our passage today draws out these challenges that we face every day amongst many others. It doesn't minimize our problems, as we often do. It doesn't try to explain them to way. You're not really under siege. If you're a Christian, you're not really under siege, or you're not really feeling abandoned. The siege and the abandonment are real. What the passage does instead is something that the Bible is constantly doing. When you read the Bible and you find your life written there, Scripture does this remarkable thing. It takes your life and puts it in a wider perspective. It takes you out of yourself and places your problems and your situation in the larger story of God's work in the world. It reorients you. The image I have is like a, like a camera that's just been focused on your face, and then it sort of zooms out and gets the bigger picture and maybe looks forward and you can see the horizon and suddenly you're not just looking at yourself. The Bible, it's the same situation, but you see it differently. The Bible gives you a, a story, a lens, uh, a narrative, a reorientation to, to understand what's happening to you and what it means. Coleridge describes this reorientation very well. He says this, and he's, he's so, so impassioned in the text, I love it. Anyway, I have perused the books of the Old and New Testaments. I have met everywhere more or less copious sources of truth and power and purifying impulses. I have found words for my inmost thoughts, songs for my joy, utterances for my hidden griefs, and pleadings for my shame and my feebleness. In short, whatever finds me in Scripture bears witness for itself that it has proceeded from a Holy Spirit, even from the same Spirit. I am certain that a large part of my light and the light and life in and by which I see and love has been derived to me from this sacred volume. As a theologian, you get jealous of, you know, if you could do theology, but with his words, you would be better at it. Um, <laughs> anyway, so what form is this light through which we see our lives take in Micah? How does Micah reorient us? What is the shape of the horizon that we find? In our passage, the horizon takes the form of a good shepherd who will take care of his people. Micah gives his readers a place to put their worries and their concerns he tells them to take their problems and turn to God with them. He tells us about the one who is to come, who will deliver them 
and be their peace. Another quick geeky moment. When Matthew quotes Micah, he's actually subtly altering the quote in two ways. One of which is that instead of quoting the whole thing in verses 2 to 4, he summarizes them. He focuses our attention on what he thinks is most important in verses 2 to 4. He says, the one who will come, uh, sorry, I've got the wrong page there. Uh, He says, the one who will come is a ruler who is to shepherd God's people Israel. It's a sort of shortened paraphrase and summary of a longer text in Micah. What he's doing is focusing on our attention, specifically here on the image of the Messiah as a shepherd. Now, we can say, oh, we shepherds, they take care of sheep, they're in charge, but they're nice. Um, you know, they're not warriors, but they're able to fight. I don't know. There are things we can sort of bring to the shepherd image, and that's, that's nice. Um, but he doesn't really tell us very much other than this shepherd will somehow give us peace and deliverance. But here's why the Bible's endlessly rich harmonies and interconnections are so wonderful. You see, it turns out that the shepherd himself had things today to say about the nature of his shepherding. Jesus, of course, certainly knew this passage and is deliberately picking it up in John's gospel when he calls himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10. He also speaks about peace and the state of siege that is the human condition in John in chapter 16. In this world you will have tribulation, he says, but be at peace, for I have overcome the world, the peace that comes in the context of the siege. The tribulation is real, but so is the peace that the good shepherd brings, the same that's described in Micah 5. The world, we're told in 1 John, is under the power of the evil one, but the evil one has also been overcome by Jesus. And how has this happened? Again, the shepherd himself explains in John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So trying to understand Micah, we are led to Matthew. From Matthew, we are led to John, and then back to Micah. Do you see how the whole Bible is a conversation with itself? How it has layers and layers that open out the more you look. Historical layers, poetic layers, existential and spiritual layers, theological layers. But what does that mean for us? How does this help us to read it this way? What does it mean for those of us whose lives feel like we are under a state of siege or who feel lonely and abandoned? How does having your life reoriented through Scripture actually help? What it does is it takes these feelings and experiences and tells us what to do with them, where to put them, whom to turn to with our struggles. And then it says three things. First, The passage tells us that the answer to our plight is outside of us. We must not look to our own strength. He's fighting our battles. We sang earlier, it's he's fighting our battles. If you are under siege at work, the temptation is to, or at home life, the temptation is to think, if I can just work harder for a little while, if I can just endure to a certain period, it will get better. If you're feeling lonely or abandoned, you can think, if I just change myself a little bit, if I can just, or get to a different context, then then I'll, I'll be loved in the way that I hope. But when Jesus says, I have overcome the world, he's reminding us that we cannot overcome the world ourselves. We need to look outside for help. He's telling us to take our our burdens to him, to the good shepherd. In, In your heart, in your prayers, bring your burdens to him. Let him bear them. We are not meant to bear all of this alone. It's not the sheep's job to fight off the wolf. 
It's not the sheep's job to know where it's supposed to go each day. Our job is just to trust the shepherd. Second, and I'd, I'd love to talk a lot more about this, but I we preached about it in January. Um, both Micah and Matthew tell us something specific about how the good shepherd works. There is something very specific and powerful here, which is namely that the shepherd comes from the unexpected place, the humble place. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, through, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler over Israel. There's something counterintuitive about the Lord coming, or the shepherd coming from Bethlehem. The shepherd works through the unexpected and humble place. Indeed, Matthew is so struck by this fact that he again updates Micah in his telling Bethlehem is no longer the small place. It has become, quote, by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. He's sort of so excited. Don't you realize this small place actually is where Jesus came from? Now it's the greatest place. Uh, if Christ came from there, then Bethlehem is the greatest of all places. And God's pattern is to work not through our strengths, but through humility, through the parts of our lives and ourselves that we overlook. One final point as I draw to a close. Do you remember how the shepherd brings peace to his people and delivers them from their enemies? He does this by laying down his life for the sheep. Again, there are many sermons that could be preached on what this means, but for today I just want to say basically one thing. When the shepherd laid down his life for his sheep on a cross outside of Jerusalem, he neutralized the power of all the things that we fear. The worst possible outcome in all cases has been reversed at a level far deeper than the state of siege that we suffer under. There is no failure in your job or some other part of your duties in life that can destroy the future that God has planned for you. There's no failure in love, no relational mistake or regret that can keep us from being loved to the very core of our being without proviso or condition. Whatever it is that you fear in your suffering doesn't have the power that you think it has. Your failures and your mistakes and your inadequacies and mine do not have the power we think they do. Our happiness and our well-being are not in our hands or in the world's hands. They're in the hands of the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And to know this, I think, is to know the peace that Micah talked about, peace no matter the circumstances, peace in the context of tribulation. I found myself thinking uh, in light of this about a friend of mine in college, a very academically able friend whose life started to sort of go south uh, in his second year. He got now, I think later he sort of really he'd gotten depressed. Um, he was uh, diagnosed as a self-sabotaging perfectionist, which means he did not have no work and felt really, really bad about it. Um, and uh, it was really, really struggling. And he, and he, he cared very deeply about his academic work and uh, was doing very badly. And he had this tutor who, this, who he would see uh, relatively regularly, and he increasingly stopped turning things in, would show up later, uh, not at all, until finally she summoned him. And this, this tutor... Uh, I remember seeing her, she, was, uh, she always wore black. She had these very kind of intense eyebrows and she chain smoked. She was intimidating. Uh, and she, we felt like she was very old. She was probably like 28. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, and he, um, she finally said, we need to have a meeting. This is th things are not going well. This is we need, you know, sort of a, a judgment meeting, right? And so she calls him into her office sort of late one, early one evening. And um, he's so, 
he's slept until 3 p.m. that afternoon, and he misses the first 45 minutes of the meeting. So the special meeting, to, that, that the emergency judgment meeting, he's almost an hour late for. And he shows up, and he's anguished, he looks terrible, his health is awful, and he sort of starts mumbling a sort of apology and explaining that he's just so stressed about his work and he can't seem to get things done. And, um, and this is what she said to him. And it turned his, genuinely the trajectory of his life, he's, he's sort of in a very different direction. She said this, you have misunderstood our relationship. My job is not to judge you. My job is to help you. I think you are an amazing student. I'm here to help the world see it, too. This was a complete reorientation of his vision of his life and what had been happening, and the, the person he most feared was actually his greatest advocate. And I think this experience refracted for my friend just a little bit of the deep cosmic reality that Micah is describing, the cosmic reality of Christ's deliverance, although it didn't immediately changed my friend's troubles. He still got some bad grades that semester, as I recall. Uh, it gave him a completely new horizon, a hopeful horizon. Through the grace of another, he was brought out of his solipsism to see the world beyond him. In the state of siege, he learned he had an advocate who was fighting for him at the moment when he felt he deserved it least. Let me pray. Dear Lord, our Good Shepherd, help us to know and admit our troubles, the state of siege, the fear of being lonely and abandoned, and help us to give those, take those to you, and to see our lives in your horizon. Show us that you are the Good Shepherd who will give us peace and deliver us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.